All right, we are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we'll do this until uh, until Holy Week, and then Holy Week will kick over into uh, the uh, liturgical kind of things for uh, Palm Sunday and, of course, Easter Sunday, Good Friday. Yeah, don't forget our Good Friday service that's coming up on the 15th, and then Easter Sunday on the 17th. But getting back to the Sermon on the Mount, we're in chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who are just joining us, is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it is a concentration of all of Jesus' teaching. Most likely, he didn't have an actual sermon where he said this just verbatim as it's written in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, But that Matthew compiled all this from all of his teachings. And it was used, most scholars believe, as an early catechism for the church. And uh, because it contained all the parts, everything that you need to know about Jesus' teaching is here in these three chapters. The rest is more or less commentary. It's amazing how that works. It's just so concentrated. It's a it's a well structured and amazingly um, just directional three chapters that are taking us on a journey. And as we're starting to near the end of this three-chapter journey, you know, I like to just kind of recap a little bit as we've been doing, just so we have a sense. We keep knowing what the whole piece is as we then dive into the weeds here. And through this series, I've been talking and going on about Jesus as a poet, as you probably remember, that we don't think about Jesus as a poet. But he's one of the best that we have on record anywhere. Amazing poet, amazing command of of stories and images, figures of speech, metaphor. He's a beautiful poet. And he's a poet for a reason, because the things of the spirit can't be talked about rationally. You can't just put a tag on them create edges around them without changing them into something else. And so he realizes that this kind of language is the only language that can point toward the truth, evoke the emotions in us, evoke the feeling of the experience in us, and point us in a direction without limiting what that experience is. And unfortunately, the church hasn't followed suit. The church has become much more literal, much more legal, and has squashed this immense vision of Jesus that he is giving to us in this poetic way. But in addition to Jesus being a poet, did you also know that he's a pretty darn good psychologist too? It's amazing. Not only the command of the language, but the command of the human condition. The knowledge of the human psyche and how we move through life from birth to death, from childhood to adulthood, and all the moving pieces, and all of the roadblocks, and all the, fa- the, the foibles and the, and the weaknesses that we have as human beings. He understands that, and his way addresses that. This is why he never gave us a theology. Read back over the red letters, those actual words of Jesus in the Gospels. He doesn't give us a theology, not the way we understand a theology. Because again, that would be defining, that would be putting words on this, this would be limiting the scope of what this experience of kingdom is that he was trying to get us to engage. He didn't give us a theology because he knows we are not saved by the mind. We're not saved by our thoughts or what we can think. In fact, what we think and how we think is the problem. That's the problem. That's what limits us. That's what gives us a full stop. 
That's what blocks us from being able to go further forward in what Jesus is trying to show us as his way, the only way to Father. And he does give us this way. He gives us a way past the problem, past the blockage of our thinking, past the blockage of our egoic mind, which does all the thinking, which is at once and at the same time what defines us as a human being, what gives us the ability to do what humans do, and at the same time isolates us, makes us feel alone, makes us fearful, and blocks us from the full extension of God's love. This is what he's trying. He's trying to show us a way past. He doesn't give us a theology. He gives us a way of life. He gives us a way of think, of relating, a way of doing, an attitude, a way of experiencing that takes us outside of our minds into the pure experience of truth. And we've talked about truth as really being a person. Truth is not a data set. Truth is a person, ultimately the person of God. But to experience that truth is what makes us free. And freedom is everything to Jesus. To be able to be free of this thought process, these thought and behavior patterns that limit us and block us. What does he tell us? He tells us not to worry. Why don't worry? Well, because worry takes us out of this present moment and focuses us on the future, things that haven't happened yet. So if you are worrying, if that is your attitude, then you are always out there someplace, but you're never right here. And we've said that God is always at the intersection of here and now. You'll never find him anyplace else but at that intersection. If you're not there, then you're not present. You're not present for the healing. You're not present for the feeling that everything really is going to be okay. Don't worry. He says, don't judge. Why? Because judging takes us out of relationship. Takes us out of the identification with the other by putting a block, a mental block between us and them. It creates us and them. It creates subject and object. To let go of the worry brings us back to the present. To let go of the judgment brings us into relationship again. We can connect with each other. And it's only in full presence and awareness in the moment that we can actually experience the connection and the oneness that is the basic truth of this universe. This universe is one thing. It looks diverse, but underneath the hood, it's one thing. And we will not experience that unless we're present here and now, free enough to experience that connection, the freedom of that connection. He tells us in Matthew 5.20, in the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, that we need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And unless we do exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. But what's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, it's legalism. It's the belief that following the law, obeying the law, will save you. And of course, it doesn't do that. He's saying we need to exceed that limited perspective, that limited way of thinking, that belief system. But even more than that, think about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, their adherence to law as the be-all and end-all, as a metaphor itself for all egoic thought. Everything that goes on in our noodles, the illusion of control that we manufacture there in our minds in whatever way we do it. And legalism is just a form of control. It's a way of manipulating God, really. 
If I write this contract with you, God, and I keep it to the letter, and you and got your signature at the bottom line, then you have to perform this, 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 and this. And I can finally feel some certainty. It's a form of control. It's an illusion of control because life doesn't work that way. And so Jesus is pointing this out. And this was so permeated in their culture, people weren't even giving it a second thought. Of course that's what we're supposed to do. We do the same thing now. Isn't everything about obedience? Isn't the church you grew up in as a child, wasn't that all about obedience? Just obey, 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 and you will be okay. But if you don't, and of course you never really know if you are or not, God's going to get you. We have to exceed that, Jesus is saying, if we are going to dive into the radical conclusion of what his love is all about. And what does he say at Luke 14, verse 33? Actually, these are in your folder. You can put them up too. Anyone who does not give up all he has cannot be my follower. Wow. You know, Jesus says exactly this in many places, and he says it in many different ways. He uses metaphors and he uses imagery to get this same point across. You know, you've got to pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, follow me. You know, all these different ways of saying, but he says it straight out here, flat out, more plainly than he probably says it anywhere else. Anyone who does not give up all he has cannot be my follower. What is he talking about here? Not just your possessions, not just the things, the material things you own, but think beyond that, because he's always pointing toward bigger things, right? He's talking about anything that we are clinging to for salvation. Even our idea of Jesus himself is something that we need to let go of. What did Jesus say right before he went to the cross? He says, it's to your advantage that I go, because then the helper will come. They were clinging on to him as the idea of him, and that was now limiting their ability to move into deeper places of the Spirit. And it wasn't until he was removed, until Moses is removed. Why didn't Moses get to go into the promised land? Not because God was punishing for a tap on the rock. It's because the people had, had fixed themselves on him. He was now the block. The image of him was the block. When that's removed, now the people can move into a deeper place. He is saying, unless we give up everything that we are clinging to that we think is our salvation, our survival, our security, then we cannot follow him because we are still attempting to control life ourselves in our own power. And it is a blockage to becoming free as Jesus is trying to get us to understand freedom. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing these things out, but we have to look beneath the veneer to find them. There's this great story, and I know I've told it in here many times, so most of you have probably heard it, but on the chance that gee, someone hasn't yet, and, uh, and maybe a good refresher isn't bad, right? John Kavanaugh, you never heard of him back in the 70s, he was a young Jesuit. He became one of the preeminent uh, professors and philosophers in the Jesuit system and in the academia in the United States. Hello. <laughs> when he was still in formation in the mid-70s, he took a year sabbatical to try to find himself because he didn't know which direction to go. And he ended up at the Houses of the Poor in Calcutta with Mother Teresa for at least a month. He was there working with her at the Houses of the, of the Dying. And the first day that he was there and he met her, and she said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, well, you know, mother, pray for me. She says, sure, what shall I pray for? 
He says, pray that I might find clarity. And she immediately says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he's shocked. Why not? She says, because clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and need to let go of. Have a mother, you seem to have such clarity all the time. Look what you're doing. A little four foot nothing turning the world on its head, right? She laughed and she says, I don't have clarity. I have trust. I'll pray that you find trust. See, trust is a very different thing than clarity. When we are after clarity, what are we after? We're after certainty. We're trying to collect enough data in order to be certain about something so that we can remove the sense of risk. Trust operates in the uncertainty, operates in the risk. Faith is the action that takes us to trust. Faith is the ability to act in the presence of uncertainty. But when we have experienced something, really experienced it, remember discernment as opposed to judgment, now we can trust it for the first time. And our anxiety and stress can go down as the trust comes up because that's the way that they move. So here is Kavanaugh looking for clarity. And she shuts him down and says, if you could stand inside my five-foot-something frame, you would see that I can't see any further than you do. But I trust that when I put my foot down, there'll be something solid underneath it. Remember last uh, couple weeks ago, we talked about emotional disorders are driven by an intolerance of uncertainty. That should be on your fridge. Is that on your fridge? That should be there. Your emotional disorders, your stress, your anxiety, your, your depression, whatever it happens to be, frustration, anger, driven by an intolerance of uncertainty, which typically drives us in two directions, to collect more and more data until we can finally find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we call certainty, or to pretend that the answers are already, the questions are already answered in advance, which is what religious people like to do. It's just in the Bible. Therefore, I believe it. It's the church that says so. The dogma of the church says so. So it's a settled question. I don't need to answer it anymore. But down deep, we still know that something is not right. Down deep, we know that we're still scared, and we don't know why, because supposedly we've got these things worked out. This is the illusion of control. This is the egoic process that Jesus is trying to get us to move past so that we can actually be free, but free in a way that we don't expect, free in vulnerability, free in a sense of dependence, free in humility, free in connection that we can't have when these barriers are up. He's trying us to break through those to get to the other side. And here's the insidious part. We don't even realize what we're clinging to. We don't even realize that we're clinging to. Because these things are in the unconscious. They're really, really deep. We can see our pursuits and the things that happen because of our deep, deep beliefs as a virtue, we don't see these unconscious programs for happiness running in the background, running in the unconscious, driving us. Sometimes they're called core beliefs, if you're familiar with that term, but they're beliefs that reside in the unconscious. We're not aware of them, but they're really driving the bus, not what we think we believe and say we believe. It's these emotional programs that are really driving us. Following Jesus in his way, in the way that he says is the only way to the Father, is a ruthless dismantling, a deconstruction of these limiting core beliefs. This is what we're trying to get to. Now, if you do have your inserts, you can follow along with me, at least in this first quote. Um, 
But if not, I, I know John doesn't have it to put up. This is from Carlos Ruiz Safon, who is a famous Spanish novelist. But listen to what he writes. He writes, One of the pitfalls of childhood is that one doesn't have to understand something to feel it. Think about that. One of the pitfalls of childhood is that one doesn't have to understand something to feel it. By the time the mind is able to comprehend what has happened, the wounds of the heart are already too deep. I want you to consider something. Nobody gets out of childhood unscathed. Nobody. It's not possible. There's too much imperfection all around. Your parents were too imperfect to allow you to get out of childhood unscathed, unhurt, unneglected, unbetrayed, you know, unsomething or other, right? We all have experienced that. And if I said, you know, how many of you would characterize your family as dysfunctional in some way? I'm sure all your heads are going to be going up and down. We all say that, yeah, there's all kinds of dysfunction there. Well, that was affecting us as a child. We didn't get through that unscathed. We're not supposed to. There's the good news. It is the wounding that starts our journey from childhood to adulthood. If there wasn't any wounding, we'd just stay children for the rest of our lives. Why not? Why would you move if it doesn't hurt at some point? Although we are supposed to keep a lid on the trauma enough that kids aren't getting knots tied in their cord that they can't ever untie. Mm. But that does happen as well. But this idea that we don't have to understand it, we don't understand anything as kids, but we feel it. And by the time we can think about it, it's already there. The scar is there, right? And the scars are these programs. These emotional programs are the scars that we're talking about here. These programs, these core beliefs. There's a little article here, and, and stay with me on this. It's eh, half a page. But, but listen to the concepts here because I think it can give us a real window in to the method in Jesus' madness. Why is he teaching the way he's teaching? Why is he so strong on what he's trying to get across to us? This is called breaking the emotional cycle. Do you find yourself doing the same things again and again and feel like there's nothing you can do about it? Are you just driven to repeat patterns that don't make any sense? This emotional cycle is a common human problem. Now, if you're interiorly saying, well, yeah, I mean, you're not alone. What did Paul say famously in Romans? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man I am. How is this possible? How does this even work? How can I be going against the things that I know in my head? It's because the emotional programs are driving the bus. Not your head. Not what you say you believe, right? You're doing the same things all over and over again because they're there in the programming. You don't know the programming exists, so you're powerless, you're helpless to defend against it or to do anything other than the program tells you what to do. Misguided, unconscious core beliefs end up making us miserable, becoming free of our compulsions, or what Thomas Keating calls the emotional programs for happiness are the start to breaking the emotional cycle. Thomas Keating, the founder of Centering Prayer, talks about three energy centers, and they are security and survival, esteem and affection, and power and control. Makes sense, right? That's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Security, survival, esteem, affection, power, and control. We need all these from the earliest times that we're breathing, right? Deep down within our minds, we are driven or drawn towards these three centers. And early in our lives, we learn specific programs for trying to achieve them. 
which operate very powerfully at a subconscious level to pattern our behavior. The emotional programs for happiness emerge, they're unconscious, but they emerge into consciousness as attachments and aversions. The things that we move toward and the things that we move away from. The things that make us comfortable or uncomfortable. Attachments and aversions are not rational. They are driven by the emotional programs for happiness, which in turn are shaped by childhood experience. So we are caught in the irrational, incomplete understanding of a child in what we prefer and what we avoid. This is as adults. Preferring some things, avoiding others, this creates in turn hidden agendas, which, because they're irrational, we tend not to admit to them. We like to depict our behavior as reasonable, principled, unselfish, even altruistic, and we get so good at doing so that we even believe it ourselves a lot of the time. We make after-the-fact justifications for our behavior which fit in with the values that we hold as adults, even while the emotional programs of our childhood are actually what are driving us. Hidden agendas, in turn, lead inevitably to triggering events. Since everyone is running around with their own programs for happiness, and a few of them mesh neatly with mine, I will always find things that other people do that trigger off my attachments and aversions, that push my buttons. Either their hidden agenda is the same as mine, and we're in competition, or it's opposite to mine, and we're in direct conflict. What this creates is the experience of frustration. I want to fulfill my emotional program for happiness. I want to move towards my attachments and away from my aversions. But someone or something is not letting me. I have powerful internal forces trying to move me in a certain direction, and I can't go in that direction. And all of this is driven by an intolerance of uncertainty, isn't it? It's that unknown. It's what we fear. That's why we need security survival, esteem, affection, power, and control. We need those things to overcome the fear of the uncertain, our intolerance for it. So these basic needs that we have in those three energy centers lead to these emotional programs, this, these attitudes and these beliefs that we cultivate as children before we're even aware we're doing it. And then those come up into our consciousness as our attachments and aversions, the things that we actually are going after and trying to avoid. What we cling to and what we cling to not clinging to. You get that? We're still clinging to something. Either we're clinging positively or we're clinging negatively. We're clinging to it or we're clinging to not cling to it. But we're still holding on to that belief system. We're still holding on to those aversions and those attachments because the programs are still in place. These things that we believe that will either provide or block those three energy centers are what we're clinging to and holding on to. Programs, attachments, aversions, they all enslave us with obsessive, compulsive thought and behavior patterns. This is what we're acting out. You want to look at dysfunction? That's where it comes from. Think of the dysfunction of your families. Think of the dysfunction of your household now. Think of what you consider dysfunction in yourself, if you have any. And see how it is driven by these same issues that we're talking about here. Obsessively and compulsively, we are going after the things and holding on to the things we think we need, pushing away the things that we don't. 
but we're not free just to be present in the moment, to actually be vulnerable enough to let another person in and connect at a deeper level. And this is exactly what Jesus says we must sell, right? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, he tells the rich young ruler. But that's not just possessions. That's everything we're talking about. All of this stuff that keeps you from the deeper expression of what it is you consider eternal life. Can't get it while we're here. He says, lay down. There's no greater love than this, that a man or woman lay down his or her life for their friend. But think beyond just the physical life. It's the life that you understand, the life that you have come to believe. Can you lay that down? Are you willing to do the difficult work that takes, the scary, frustrating work of going deep enough to lay down those things? This is the language that he uses. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. Are you willing to crucify the old man? Those are Paul's words now. Same thing. Are you willing to let that die? Are you willing to kill that off, actually? Because if you're not, you're still loved. But you're not going to experience what it is that you can experience in this life. To be free enough to do that. Thomas Keating himself puts it this way. Spiritual strength is the capacity to act from the center of our being. All right? Rather than acting from our emotional reactions to events, the capacity to respond to events from the center of compassion and genuine concern, to relate to people where they are, and to accept ourselves and our weaknesses in the confidence that God will help us to sift through our weaknesses and let go of behaviors that are obstacles to relating to truth, to other people, to ourselves, and to ultimate reality. Same thing here. The capacity to respond to events from the center of compassion and genuine concern and not just emotional reactions to events that are taking place. Now, the trouble with all of this is, of course, is that our attachments and our aversions can be really sneaky. If they are socially acceptable, if society accepts our attachments and our aversions, by and large, and rewards us for them, then why in the world are we going to let go? And they become another source of power and control for us if society is rewarding them, right? So what are some of the things? So just so we can get real specific here, what are some of the things we're talking about? We can be clinging to our looks because we realize that our looks give us power. Our looks give us the ability to get others to do the things that we want them to do. It can be our intelligence. It can be our athletic, our our creative abilities and talents. Those are the things that give us all of those three, right? Survival, security, esteem, affection, power, control. What gives us that? It can be our family. It can be friends. It can be our significant others. Now, these are not bad things. See, this is the problem. This is where it gets sneaky. Why did Jesus say, unless you're willing to hate your father and mother, your brother and sister, your children, and even your own life, you can't follow me? Now, hate in his language, Sanam, means to prefer less. It's not a malicious kind of hate. But do you see where he's going with this? Even the things that are your attachments that you're clinging to that are healthy and good and in that society held in highest esteem 
are still your blockages if that is where you are identifying yourself. How about your faith? How about your church? How about your theology? How about your career? How about your wealth? These are all attachments. How about a cause or a mission? Now, interesting, the thing about causes and missions, they are generally clinging to the things we don't want to cling to. What do you have a cause or a mission about? Well, maybe your mission and your cause is to exterminate racism, sexism, social injustice. Maybe it's dealing with politics or religion itself, environmentalism. It doesn't matter. But that is your attachment and your aversion at the same time because you're working to eradicate those things. These are the things that are disgusting to you and you need to push them away. These are the things that make us rich in the sense that they make us invested in these things. And what did Jesus say about the rich? He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, the interesting thing about that saying, gamla, means both camel and rope at the same time. So the saying could be, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. Same difference, right? He's talking about the extreme difficulty that someone who is invested, right, in any system has to be able to let go of all the things that he or she has built up in their lives to be able to actually follow Jesus into kingdom. But carrying all that stuff blocks us from even seeing the possibility of what this is all about. There was a young addict that uh, I remember talking to years ago, and she told me that she felt very fortunate (laughs) that her, she didn't use this phrase, emotional program, was so destructive and so socially unacceptable, her heroin addiction, because there was no way that it was going to be prolonged very long in her life. It was going to come to a head very quickly. She was in her 20s. She felt fortunate that her attachment was not socially acceptable and was destructive because it brought her to the brink sooner, brought her to the place where she was finally asking the right questions in life. For those of us not so fortunate, where the things that we are attached to are socially acceptable and needed in life, we can go decades, we can go the rest of our lives without ever being pushed to the precipice in our own minds. What does Jesus see us as clinging to? Well, Matthew 5, we talked about, was all about a redefinition of the law. He sees us as clinging to law. He sees us as clinging to obedience as a way to control the outcome. And he says, that's something we need to let go of. In Matthew 6, he's talking about righteousness. Remember, they defined righteousness as giving tithes, alms, prayer, fasting. That was the way that the ancient Jews measured their righteousness. And he's saying, you need to give that up as well as your idea of how your religious or your ethical codes are now your form of control in your egoic mind. We already talked about that he said, don't worry. But he specifically says, don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your status. People who don't know our God chase after these things. But you, you can come back in. Let go of those attachments. Find the deeper place. Put your treasure in heaven and not on earth, he said. He talked about judgment. That's where our self-righteousness can become our attachment and the thing that we're using to control outcomes. And so Jesus is pointing all these things out just in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Then the question becomes, how do we let go? How do we start to get past this? How do we follow Jesus in this direction he's trying to take us? And he's going to give us a principle. But once again, we're going to need to look beneath the hood a little bit to find where he's going with this. Let's take a look at Matthew 7, 7 and 8. This is the new material for this morning. It took us a long while to get there, didn't it? Actually, we're not even there yet. We read this last week. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. But this and the next section that is new for us this morning act as a unit together. Watch. Or, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? So here is these two sayings that work as a block together. Ask, seek, knock. Nothing will be denied you. But then he's going to put some skin on that. It's almost like another form of Hebrew poetry, where he's saying the same concept one after another, but with different imagery to lock it in. And this connecting word, or, shows us that he is giving us two looks, two bites at the same apple, right? They work as a unit. So ask, seek, and knock are being amplified here in the stones and the loaves and the fish and the snake. They're being personalized, bringing them down to connect us as a deeper statement. And so here we go. Ask, seek, and knock denotes a process we talked about last week. The process of selling everything, letting go of everything. It starts with the desire. It starts with the, then continues with the be'ah, the deep search from inside to outside, leaving no stone unturned. Kind of like a fourth step for you program people, you know, really going deeper. And then the knock, the kosh, is the realization. It's setting up a tent. It's striking a musical note, something that is real, something that people can gather around. That's the realization part. So as seek and knock is actually a process of this way of Jesus, of letting go, of going deeper. Letting go of those core beliefs through this deep desire and the diligent work. It won't be denied, just as a human parent would never deny the child. Now this is a typical rabbinical technique, teaching technique called Kalvei Homer, if you care about that sort of thing. But it it's literally means light and heavy. If something is true in the light instance, then how much more is it true in the heavy instance? So if fa- frail and um, imperfect human parents would give good things to their children who ask, things that they absolutely need, how much more will your Father in heaven give you? How much more is it true for God? So you see this in operation around you. Why do you doubt that your father would be at least as good a parent as your dysfunctional parent was, right? But there's a deeper meaning here also. This is not just a passive asking. You know, just God grant me the serenity and it's going to be dropped in our lap. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's active in the discernment that we need Because we still need to choose life. There's still something that we need to do. Stones and loaves, for instance. These common loaves of bread that were baked in in first century Judea were round and smooth, and they looked a lot like the kind of rocks that you would see on the hillside, especially the ones that had water running through them that were now round and smooth. And so from a distance, you could have a stone and a loaf right next to each other and not necessarily know which one was which but bite into it and you're going to find out pretty quick. 
one can sustain and preserve life and the other cannot. Fish and snakes, well, when they're swimming in the water with the ripples, you may not be able to easily distinguish between a fish and a snake. But grab onto it, and you'll find out one can preserve life and the other can take it away, actually. Luke really interestingly adds eggs and scorpions into the same thing. And you think, what in the world? But it's interesting that there are white scorpions in Judea, and in back in the first century, they were described by Pliny, who was the first one to actually, a Roman general and, and a philosopher who wrote the first encyclopedia of natural history. He described those scorpions as being, when they were coiled up, as being about the same size and color as eggs. And in fact, assassins would hollow out an egg and put the scorpion inside as a way to assassinate their unfortunate victim. So what's going on here is Jesus is setting three sets of things that from a distance can look the same. Stones and loaves, fish and snake, eggs and scorpions, they can look pretty much the same when you're looking from a distance. But some can preserve life and others will not or can actually take it away. And this parallels some other difficult sayings that Jesus... Do you ever wonder why in the world he cursed the fig tree? Good Lord, it's a tree. It wasn't even the season for figs, but he's angry because there isn't a fig on it when he gets up to it. From a distance, it looked all green and verdant like it should be full of fruit, and he gets up and it's, there's nothing there. And he curses it and it withers. But notice that the fig tree is overlaid with the story of cleansing the temple. From the outside, the temple was white and magnificent and beautiful and looked like the center of Jewish spiritual life. But inside, it was corrupt. Inside, it had become a den of thieves. This same idea that from a distance, something looks like it can preserve life, but when you get a little closer, it can't. And this is what Jesus is trying to pull off for us and trying to get us to understand. He's building us, or trying to get us to build the awareness the presence to actually see the truth. Because a little later in chapter 7, Jesus is going to say that you will know the truth by the fruit, by the fruit of the thing. At first glance, our legalism, you know, whether it's the Pharisees and the scribes or whether it's ours today, anybody's legalism, looks like righteousness, doesn't it? That's why it's so attractive. It gives us illusion of control. It looks like we're doing something for something. And it looks like we're really holding the line for God. But is the fruit of legalism life-affirming, or is it taking it away? Those of you who know or have experienced legalism or know someone who is legalistic, maybe you felt that you were legalistic in the past. What was really the fruit of legalism? What I've seen it create is divisions among people. I've seen it create the fear of punishment because everything is focused on the law and a contractional relationship with God. Division, fear of punishment, and an eventual caste system starts to develop where you've got those who have and those who have not, those who are following the law and those who are not, and an us and them system where those who have are looking down. It creates entitlement in the people. All of these things are the exact opposite of what the kingdom person was shown to be in the first section of the Beatitudes. The exact opposite. Right? Snakes, fish, stones, loaves, legalism. Look at the fruit. What is it actually doing when you take a bite of it? 
Our socially acceptable programs for happiness can look righteous to us. Our accomplishments that we get, the recognition that we receive, the rewards, the influence that we can find ourselves possessing, the wealth, the power, the control. What is the fruit of all of that? For most of us who are focused on those things, not that they're bad, but when we're focused on those things, what I'm hearing the fruit is stress, anxiety, depression, paranoia. You got something and now you got to put bars on your windows to hang on to it, right? Bunker mentality and entitlement again. We need to be able to discern what is the fruit of this thing that we're after. I don't know if I, I have this note here. Years ago, a lawyer said to me, I know at death, I won't wish I had taken one more case. <laughs> and yet, he said in the next breath, I'm not living my life that way. <laughs> I am still obsessively taking the next case, and I'm still focused on this. It was still a part of his identity to be the busy lawyer and the successful lawyer. No? He knows this, but he's not acting on it. He was not yet ready, like the rich, rich young ruler, to sell that emotional program for happiness and lay down and move into something deeper, even though his mind was telling him something different. And the truth is we don't need to stop these activities. We can't stop these activities. This is your livelihood we're talking about here. You've got businesses to run. You've got the things that you're doing in your life. We need to keep doing those things and be responsible and take care of the dependence that we have. But at the same time, can we stop relying on them as the be-all and end-all of our identity, meaning, and purpose? Can we stop believing that they are our salvation and we can say, well, yes, I don't believe that like that lawyer, but what is the action? What is the fruit? Where are the emotional disorders in your life that belie the fact that you actually have laid these things down? What they are, everything that we do in life, are temporary tools that we use while we're breathing here. And we won't be using them anymore when we stop breathing. They won't follow us wherever we're going. They're temporary tools that we use as humans, but they're not who we are, and they don't point us to ultimate meaning. This is where Richard Rohr's wonderful line, the task within the task, comes in. Can we get to the point where we're seeing the task within the task, that central and universal task of building connection, oneness with each other, through the tasks that we do, through our businesses and careers and everything else? I remember when our youngest son, who's now 17, was still a little guy, and he would spend hours and hours building Minecraft worlds. And I don't know if you guys know what Minecraft is. It was a pretty primitive program by today's standards. But, you know, you just build things with it, and you can build castles. And, he, and he'd build this stuff, and he was so excited about it, and he would be hyper-focused, you know, for as long as we let him, pretty much, as if the whole world depended on his architecture. You know, it's just everything depended on this, you know. And, you know, as a parent, Mary and I are looking at him and just kind of laughing, and, you know, he's just a toy. And... But are we really any different? All of this, this whole world, our lives, is really like the virtual reality of a kid's game. If it comes right down to it, all these things that we do, we're going to leave someday. But what are we extracting from it? Now, he was getting skills. He was getting, dex you know, 
dexterity with the keyboard and, and, and learning how things fit together, what worked, what didn't work. He was getting skills out of playing that game that are going to follow him, but it had nothing to do with the game itself or what he built there. He was going to leave that as a child leaves his toys. It's the same thing with us. Are we learning to see past those outward tasks? This way of Jesus, this way of letting go, is the way to do that, to do just that, to develop the awareness to see that task within the task, to find out where true meaning and purpose and identity lives, to look inward for that, even as we continue to do the things that we do, and to have the things that we continue to do reinvigorated with the energy of this new connection with meaning and purpose. And at this point, if we just reread Keating really fast and see if it makes any more sense, that spiritual strength is the capacity to act from the center of our being rather than acting from our emotional reactions to events. The capacity to respond to events from the center of compassion and genuine concern, to relate to people where they are, and to accept ourselves and our weaknesses in the confidence that God will help us to sift through our weaknesses and let go of behaviors that are obstacles to relating to truth, obstacles to relating to other people, ourselves, and ultimate reality. That's it. And it only happens when we're completely free in the moment, free to be fearlessly vulnerable and vulnerable enough to be fully present to see what really gives life and what takes it away, and always to choose life. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot of stuff. For many of us, Lord, this is a, a complete 180 on how we have approached the Gospels and uh, approached your word. If it's still not sitting with us right, if it still feels uneasy, help us just to sit with it, consider it, and see whether it may be true, or at least true enough to walk down that path. If it's something that we've already considered, if it's something that we say we believe, help us to really see whether it's in action in our life or just residing in our thoughts and not touching where we really live yet. Help us to bring it into a place where it can really change the way we live, change our attitudes. Allow us the freedom to be fully vulnerable in our moments so that we can be fully connected as well. Father, thank you, thank you for being the one who takes the risk out of the equation if we can trust you, not with certainty, but with the experience of knowing who you are. Thank you, Father, for everything that you give us every day. Never let us forget we can only do this because you did it first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.